This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hi, we're here live with Tucker Booth back on From the Back Tees with my Rappers Don't Golf podcast. I am very, very honored to have yet another wonderful guest today. Another former Golf Channel producer, someone that produced live tournament golf since the very beginning of the Golf Channel, and another person that has intimate knowledge of Golf Channel's genesis. Today I've got with me author Keith Hirschland. He wrote the book, Cover Me Boys, I'm Going In, Tales of the Tube from a Broadcast Brat, as well as a number of other books after that. I'm very honored to have Keith. Keith, how you doing? Tucker, thanks for asking me to be on the show. Oh, well, thank you for coming on. Um, I guess we'll start by having you kind of give us a description. Keith, tell us a bit about what you've done specifically in broadcasting and then also a little bit about what you're doing these days now that you've retired from broadcasting. Well, it's, it's quite a, a long, sordid tale, so uh, I'll try and be as succinct as I can. Oh, we've got time. Go right ahead. Yeah, thanks. Um, I grew up uh, kind of as the subtitle of the book says, uh, as a broadcast brat. My, um, my folks were really um, local television pioneers in Reno, Nevada. They started a uh, local affiliate television station in Reno when, uh, when we were there. My dad managed uh, one of the stations in Reno when we first moved to Reno for a number of years, and then he and my mom um, decided that it was time for Reno to have a third um, local affiliate. At the time, there was only a CBS affiliate and an NBC affiliate. This was in the late 50s, uh, early 60s, and uh, there was no ABC affiliate in Reno, and my folks got a group of investors together, uh, basically uh, double, triple mortgaged their house, sold their cars. Uh, we moved We moved from living in a in a beautiful big house, and my dad driving a Jaguar XKE, and my mom driving a Lincoln Continental, to living out of motels in Reno, and and uh, riding around in the back of an Edsel station wagon for a number for a few years. But uh, they got all the money together to start this TV station, and uh, got it going. And um, I grew up kind of just as a little rug rat running around the TV station, watching how it was built from the ground up, and fell in love with television. My first love and goal was to be a professional golfer, but once I realized that that plan wasn't going to take fruit, I uh, turned to the next best thing, which was sports television. Now, now, Keith, I'll jump in real quick. I've been reading your book, and your dad essentially created something on television that was not there in Reno at the time. I guess maybe tell me a little bit about watching your dad create this new television station that had much more of a far-reaching impact than the others in that area at the time, and then also how you got into broadcasting as a result of that. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, You know, I think my dad really, uh, uh, a little bit differently than the other other two stations in Reno, my dad really, and my mom, um, really wanted to, to make sure that the community was served um, in the Reno area, and so they went to great lengths to uh, to do a number of things that had never been done before in northern Nevada, and among those were, uh, you know, the bringing local election coverage to uh, to Reno, um, it didn't, you know, um, election night had never really been a thing on television, especially at, at that local level, and my dad and the folks at KTVN made sure that happened. 
first television station to broadcast the governor's State of the State address live. And the other thing that, that he really felt was a connection to the community and was a huge influence on me um, was sports. And so they, you know, they took to, uh, took to the streets and broadcast uh, Friday night high school football and University of Nevada, Reno football and basketball. And um, we had a, a minor league baseball team in Reno, affiliate of, the, of, of a number of different teams, but, um, and also minor league hockey. So uh, they made sure that local sports was at the forefront of what they were doing at, the, at that television station. And, you know, as a you know young kid growing up as a sports fan, um, I really, uh, it, was, it was really cool to see that. So when I went to school, I, you know, I did go to school with, I got a little bit of money from a small school in, in Portland, Oregon to play a little golf and, uh, did that for a couple of years, but decided I didn't like playing golf in the rain. So I came back to Reno, um, and finished my schooling in Reno. And while I was there, I went to, uh, you know, to one of the local hockey games and the sportscaster who I had known that worked for my dad was there, uh, with his Super 8 film camera, and he was there to, you know, to, to film highlights of the hockey game. And he, we got to talking, and he's complaining about how he, you know, hated to have to stay for the whole game. And I kind of said, well, hell, I'm here. I'm watching the game. Give me the camera. I'll shoot the highlights, and I'll drop the film by the station later on tonight. You can have it for the, for the evening sportscast. So he let me do that, and, you know, kind of one thing led to another, and um, before I knew it, I was doing more and more of that and um, finally got offered the chance to actually do the weekend sports for the station and then some other things. And that domino, you know, those dominoes started to fall and all of a sudden I was, I had a career in broadcasting. Well, you mentioned the Super 8 film and all of that in the book. And I think for so many of the listeners that are from this modern era of high-def digital technology, I think that might be a really interesting anecdote for them about how sportscasters yourself and just about everyone, including the, the big-time people, were filming and putting together all of the, the this footage on these incredibly rudimentary uh, you know, film equipment and you know, all this, you know, rudimentary machines. I guess, tell us a little bit about that process and how you got into that back in the day, too. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, you know, and I, it's funny because now I, I, I'm occasionally asked to, to go speak to, uh, you know, to, to high schools and middle schools, high schools, and even at the University of Nevada and talk a little bit about, you know, kind of my path in broadcasting. And I have, as show and tell, I have every medium with which I worked during my broadcast career. And that is, goes from, you know, the Super 8 film, 16-millimeter film, uh, three-quarter-inch videotape, uh, one-inch videotape, two-inch videotape, then back to, you know, DigiBeta and carts. And now all of a sudden, like you say, things are, you know, like the technology has been, been incredibly amazing. And now everything's shot on these little cards and, and tiny little discs and things like that. So it's really cool. But... You know, one of my first experiences at the station was uh, I, I shot on this Super 8 camera uh, the high school, there was a high school state wrestling match. And I, you know, got, there was a big upset and I, I got, you know, got great angles of the, of the match and took it back to the station to, to get it ready for the, the late newscast. And at the time we had to, the, the, at the station, in the early days of the station, the general sales manager, 
was responsible for going out to all the car dealers and selling advertising for the television station, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he had to give up his office every day because it also served as the dark room where they processed all the film for the newscast. So <laughs> they kicked Jackson Fleming out of his office every day at 3 o'clock so they could uh, develop the film. It was you know crazy. But so we did that, and then you had to put it on a spool, edit it, like pick the pick the section of the film, that, the actual film that you wanted to use for the broadcast, and then tie it together with a leader and 10 seconds of, of you know, space, and then the next story. So whether that was, you know, highlights from the from the Reno Silver Sox or from, from something else that happened during the sports day. So you, you spliced it all together with splicing tape in the, in the film room. So I did that, and I put my sports cast together, and I put the sports cast together for our sports director. His name was Joe Bickett. And in between, you know, he told me exactly where in the film splicing to put it, and I did that. So I was all proud of myself and went down and was uh, got ready to watch the sports cast. And uh, it hit air, and when he led to the wrestling story, um, the film came up, and it was upside down. So <laughs> I had spliced it wrong so that the you know the wrestlers were all upside down and so they you know we got quite a I can, you can laugh at it now at the time I was mortified I'm sure I was going to lose my job thank goodness I didn't but uh, you know those are the little things you don't you know you don't guys today don't even have to think about because everything's done digitally and you can fix it in a heartbeat you can do anything you want you can manipulate the, the you know the, the images and the pixels and all that good stuff and but at the time it was uh, you know it was caveman television it was fun. You were talking specifically about growing up in a family that was passionate about sports and that went to a lot of Giants baseball games and 49ers games and about being passionate amateur athletes, golfers, etc. Tell us a little bit about how that inspired you to get into sports broadcasting and sports production. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, my, you know, my folks, uh, they were huge sports fans and they instilled in us the importance of, I think, the importance of sport um, in what it meant to our upbringing. You know, when, when I was a kid, I'm 63 years old now, and, um, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't, uh, we weren't so narrow focused as I think a lot of, a lot of young athletes are these days. I mean, we played every sport. I mean, we, you know, in the springtime, we played golf and baseball, if those were the sports you chose. You know, in the wintertime, you skied, you played football, you, you know, basketball was a winter sport, so, you know, it wasn't like, let's concentrate on, you know, my, my parents, even though that, you know, my younger brother played um, collegiate golf at Arizona State and was a pretty good player, my parents never, you know, said, you're just going to do this one thing and we're just going to concentrate on this one thing because they knew how important kind of everything was. And the fan part of it just, you know, instilled in us and especially me, I guess, that passion. My mom listened to every San Francisco Giants game on her transistor radio and you know, lived and died with the team. And my dad would, you know, I, I can still hear him, you know, so-and-so, you know, that guy's a bum and he never gets a hit until he got a hit driving the winning run. And then, you know, he was the big, you know, the greatest player that the Giants or the A's had ever signed. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was really fun being, you know, kind of being their, their kid because they were so passionate about it. And they made sure, that, you know, and my dad through his local TV connection, you know, we were always able to, at least once a year, go down and see a 49er game, a Raider game, a Giants game, and a and an A's game. You know, and so we were lucky enough to be at the Heidi Bowl when you know 
we were sitting in the stands when all that craziness happened on TV. We were fortunate to be at the 49er Cowboy playoff game when Dwight Clark made the catch. And, you know, I know a lot of people say they were there, but, you know, I was actually there and, and thrilled to be there and have wonderful memories of all of that stuff. And I think that that, you know, just that being a fan bled over into my desire to, you know, to kind of be a sports, you know, be in sports television. And, and in the beginning of my career, I wanted to be on TV until I realized how much I hated being on TV. And then I just loved the storytelling part of it. So I wanted to be behind the scenes and, and start telling stories about the great accomplishments of athletes. Okay, well, let's flash forward to when you get out of school and now you know that you're going to be pursuing this type of career or at least you're dreaming that dream. Kind of help us in the storyline get to the next level. I know you worked at ESPN2 and that was an early job for you. Where, where did you go next? How did you get to the next plateau? Yeah, so I started uh, in local, like doing local, local um, you know, like I said, I was on the air for a while, then I went behind the scenes and I started up directing news, local newscasts and figured that that was going to be my way to, to get to ESPN, to be a director, uh, to be one of the guys that sits in the control room and directs SportsCenter. So um, I tried that path, uh, ended up at a local TV station in Connecticut um, because that was right down the road from Bristol, hoping that they'd see my work and, and want to hire me at ESPN. Um, at, during that time, I my parents retired, sold the television station and retired and, and were living on Maui. And my mom and dad were volunteering at all the golf tournaments that ESPN televised um, when they came to the islands. So I was talking to my dad one night and I said, you know what, I'm really getting tired of waiting for ESPN to see how good of a director I am. And I miss sports. I was directing newscasts and, and helping, you know, the Sally Jesse Raphael show that was that was broadcast out of the station I was working at in New Haven, Connecticut, and I really wanted to get back into sports, and so my dad said, well, you know, I know those guys that Olmeyer, Don Olmeyer's production team was producing all the golf for ESPN, because we work with them when they come to the islands every year, and, you know, I'll, I'll give them a call and see if, you know, see if there's anything they can do for you. So he did, and, and the gentleman that at the time that was the, the producer of ESPN's golf for Olmeyer was a guy named Paul Spengler, um, and he told my dad, sure, you know, have Keith come, you know, have him come out to L.A. We'll give him a job. Well, my dad tells me that, and I'm sitting in my little place in Connecticut, and I thought, well, what the heck? I got nothing to lose. I got a job in L.A., so I packed up, quit my job, packed up the car, drove to L.A., and couldn't get a hold of Paul Spengler for about six months. <laughs> <laughs> he, wouldn't, he wouldn't return my call. Um, but finally, you know, I just kind of, you know, muscled my way in there. I pushed and begged and showed up and told him I'd work for free and, you know, did all the dumb things that, you know, you're not supposed to do. Um, and the guys that were running the show for ESPN Golf kind of said, listen, if you're really serious about this, we'll bring you out to Las Vegas for a senior tour event and we'll give you a try. Uh, we can't pay you, but we'll give you, a, you know, we'll fly you there and we'll give you a room and, you know, we'll see how you do. And I guess fortunate for me, I did okay. And uh, the folks at Olmeyer hired me. Um, that led me, I was there for a handful of years, that led me to ESPN in Bristol where they needed help getting ESPN2 started, and this was in January of 1994. So there was a bunch of talk and scuttlebutt going around the industry in 1994 about how some guy in Birmingham, Alabama was going to start a golf television network. 
and it was going to be called the Golf Channel, and you know they were looking to looking to go on the air. And I heard about this and heard about this for months, and never my phone never rang. And I was like, well, what the heck? I've been you know producing and helping produce golf for ESPN for a handful of years, and how come nobody's calling me? So I finally picked up the phone and called a gentleman named Mike Whalen, who uh, was the executive producer at Golf Channel, and kind of threw my hat in the ring and you know he appreciated my call and said he'd get back to me and he didn't for a few weeks and a week a few weeks became a month and a month became six weeks and then finally my phone rang and mike was like we want you to come down to orlando for an interview we want to hire you as our as our live golf producer um and you know would you like to be would you be interested in that so i uh went from um los angeles Bristol, Connecticut in January of 1994. This is with a wife and two infants, um, a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and moved from Los Angeles to Bristol, Connecticut, from Bristol, Connecticut to Orlando, Florida in the space of 10 months. So uh, I wasn't a real popular guy around the house, but I got my dream job. Well, and it sounds like that took a lot of courage every step of the way, and I imagine anybody dreaming a dream of breaking into the entertainment industry on any level knows how difficult it is and also how much guts it takes to kind of make those leaps of faith, especially when there's no guarantees. I mean, obviously you must have doubted yourself at various points, but what was it that kept driving you to do it? Was it that passion that we already talked about for the material itself, or was there some other motivation that ran deeper than that? You know, it's funny. Uh, you know, it was, it was going to Bristol was an easy decision because, you know, at the time at Olmeyer, I had kind of uh, reached what I felt was I, I couldn't afford to live in Los Angeles anymore with a growing family on the salary I was making from Olmeyer. And I, back, I actually went to them and said, listen, I need, I need a fairly substantial raise to keep doing what I'm doing or I'm going to have to find another I'm going to have to find another job. And um, they were one of the guys, Howard Katz, who um, is now with the NFL Network and and um, was at ESPN, went from Olmeyer to ESPN um, when Don sold his company to ESPN, basically said, listen, we can't pay you what you need to make to keep doing golf for us, but I really need help at ESPN too. So if you're willing to move to Bristol, um, I'm willing to, you know, give you a substantial bump in salary and move your family to Bristol and, and have you help us get ESPN2 off the ground. So that was, you know, that was that was a pretty easy decision at the time. The Golf Channel decision was was much more complicated because, like you said, it was, I mean, there is not one single person, and I defy anybody to say that at the time that they didn't say there is no chance that this thing is going to work. There is no chance that 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 a twenty four hours a day, seven day a week network devoted exclusively to call is going to succeed in nineteen you know ni- end of nineteen ninety four, beginning of nineteen ninety five. Um, but you know, I I don't know, Tucker. It was like something something struck a chord in me. Um, I wanted to get back into golf. I wanted to get, you know, I, I missed doing golf. And when I went down there and, and it was, you know, kind of this, it was in an office building right near Universal Studios. They didn't have, all, all they had were a couple of,
Gibbs, the, the guy who started it all, was in one office. Mike Whalen, uh, Paul Farnsworth, and Bob Greenway were the other folks that I, I met. And there were a couple of other folks there at the time, but I didn't meet them that day. And just, you know, the passion and the, like, you know, we're going to make this work. We're going to get the, you know, we have, you know, the most, you know, we're so excited. They were so excited about this thing. And that, I, you know, kind of got, it, it kind of struck me in the right place, in the heart and in the head. And, you know, I just, I went back and, and you know, I went and talked to Howard and the folks at ESPN. And they were like, you're crazy. You have a great job here. You have a great future here. Why in the world would you give that up to go down to a startup that I guarantee you six months, heck, maybe even six weeks from now is not even going to exist. And you know what? I just, like you said, it was a leap of faith. I thought, I, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. So, and it, it was it was the best decision I ever, were there scary times? Absolutely. I mean, did I think on a number of occasions I was making the wrong decision? I'd be lying if I said I wasn't. But in the end, you know, Thank goodness it all worked out. Well, I think people nowadays, talking about nowadays again, they can't even conceive about what a humongous head-scratcher that was in the sports world back then to launch a 24-7 golf channel. Now with it being so ubiquitous and golf also being so much larger as a worldwide game with worldwide eyeballs on it all the time you know people forget that like you said in the early 90s this was a humongous risk and a humongous dice roll i guess my next question is when do you think it started feeling like the momentum was with you and the wind was blowing at your back and that golf channel was actually going to succeed what do you think were the turning points where golf channel really started to take off and become what it now surely is a successful 24 7 Golf Network. Yeah, it was. I mean, it took a while. They, you know, and I, I give, uh, I give the powers to be down in in Orlando, which you know they moved from the office building to the to a, a fairly nice little little uh, compound where we where we were, you know, started doing business. But in the beginning, it was modeled on a on a paid TV service, much like HBO. Um, they all thought that they were going to get enough subscribers to pay five, six, seven bucks a month for this golf network that they were going to be able to make a go of it. And uh, to their credit, um, as, you know, we were we were bleeding through money, um, you know, they, they said this, this, this model is not going to work. We need to get on basic cable television. We need to be, you know, on a basic tier like ESPN or like any other, you know, basic cable network um, to make this thing succeed. And, you know, they went to a bunch of the, the cable uh, operators were investors, were early investors in the Golf Channel. And Joe went to them and said, listen, if we switch to a basic cable model, will you, will you carry us? Will you give us carriage? And at the time, um, he... You know, in 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 the in the day and age when people were when cable companies were paying networks to get carriage, Joe said, "I'm going to reverse that, and I will actually pay you guys to carry us." It was not a significant sum of money, but it was you know he he knew that he needed to get more eyeballs watching the Golf Channel, and Arnold Palmer, who was um, a 
again, you know, hugely in, influential in getting the Golf Channel going. A lot of people think, you know, he was he had more to do with it than he actually did, but he had a huge amount to do with it. Um, he had a little gathering every year called the Arnold Palmer Golf Gala, where he invited three of his friends um, to play in this little match around Laurel Valley Country Club to benefit um, the hospital in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And he agreed that we could put that little gathering that that year included Tom Lehman, Davis Love, and a young Tiger Woods. So it was Lehman and Love against Arnold and Tiger. And he said, we're going to televise this, and we're going to offer it to every single cable operator that wants it and for free. And we're going to try and get um, folks to pay attention to the Golf Channel. So we put this thing on the air, and it was a you know, at the time, what we felt, felt like was a huge success. Um, and that kind of turned turned the tables and got people interested in, in the Golf Channel. I mean, I can't tell you, when we were on the road, we, we were, we'd we stay at hotels. You know, nobody ever heard of the Golf Channel. We couldn't watch our work because the hotels didn't carry the Golf Channel. They didn't know what it was. We'd go to people, people with, at golf tournaments, you know, oh, here, you're here with ESPN? No, with the, we're with the Golf Channel. There's a golf channel? I mean, there's a station that covers golf? You know, it's like, yeah, we've been on the air since January of 95, and, you know, it was it was crazy. I mean, I can't imagine there were more than 10,000 people that were watching the golf channel in those early days. And then this whole switch to, to basic cable and the Arnold Palmer Golf Gala kind of got us off the ground. And, you know, we felt like we were flying high at the time. And at the 10th anniversary party, Joe Gibbs got up and told the story about how how many times he went to bed on Thursday night, not sure, not sure how he was going to make payroll that next Friday. Um, so if that, you know, that kind of hit home to the fact that, you know, it took, it took a while. It took a handful of years, but, um, they made it profitable and, you know, turned it into a billion dollar enterprise that went, you know, Comcast came knocking around in the early 2000s and made Joe a billionaire. Wow. All right, I want to ask you some questions about your time there producing tournaments. And I know you told me when we talked before that you were one of the people that was going around to most of these tournaments and, uh, you know, kind of being the traveling producer guy. Can you tell me some favorite memories from that era of going around to these various tournaments? I'm sure you've you've been around all of the greats, as you've already mentioned some of their names. You know, any favorite memories or, or, or things that jump out to you from that era? Um, I guess that you know, there's a ton. There are a ton of things, and you know, plug, plug, plug here. I'd encourage folks to. To go on Amazon and, and take a look. If you're interested in golf or TV or golf on TV or sports on television in general, um, I, you know, I, I tried to tell a bunch of stories about the early days of the Golf Channel and the Wild Wild West. And um, you know, we we you know we met Tiger Woods when he turned pro, and um, you know, it was an amazing that was an amazing time because uh, he was so giving of his time. He was so good about. Um, spending time with us when, you know, he was clearly, you know, the, the new shiny object and he could have, he could have very easily, you know, shined us on. Um, but he didn't, you know, if, he, if we asked him to do an interview at 4.30 on Wednesday afternoon, he'd show up at 4.30 on Wednesday afternoon and, and sit down with us for as long as we needed him to and answer every question. And, you know, it's, we, I almost 
came close twice uh, to being the guy that was able to produce his first PGA Tour win um, at both the Quad City Classic and Moline when he lost to Ed Fiore, um, and then a little bit later at, at the BC Open um, in Endicott, New York. But um, I was happy for my mentor, a guy named Andy Young, who produced, was still producing golf for ESPN at the time and, and got to produce his first win at, at Vegas. And then a couple of weeks later, he came to Disney, and we were televising that event, and and he won again. So I got his second win. I didn't get his first win, but I got his second win. Um, but we, you know, we had so many fun stories. We, we, you know, the family that we had out there together with, you know, Donna Capone and Kay Cockrell, and folks that are still doing golf today. And you know, I hired Jerry Foltz. He was, you know, he was um, one of the guys that basically showed up in the truck when we were first televising the Nike Tour. This is kind of, I think this is kind of a funny story. We didn't know who any of these guys were. I mean, you know, they were not household names. These were the, you know, this was the, you know, the AAA of golf, the, the developmental tour, although they hated to be called that. But, were, um, they, were they basically the web.com tour of that era? It's, it, right. So it started out as the Hogan tour, and then Nike took over the sponsorship, I think in 94, and we started televising their events in 95. Um then it became, after Nike, it became Buy.com, and then Buy.com turned into the Nationwide Tour, and then Nationwide became Web.com. So, yeah, it was the genesis of the Web.com Tour. Um, so, it, But Nike was the sponsor at the time, and, you know, we didn't know who any of these, you know, we didn't know who Dan Bateman was. We didn't know who, you know, I mean, there were, you know, tons of the P.J. Cowan and, and P.H. Horgan, and I didn't know any of these guys. But we were televising their events, and I had to sit in the television truck with, you know, 60 or 70 8-inch monitors at, in black and white and be able to look at a guy and say, oh, that's, you know, that's P.H. Horgan at the 14th hole getting ready to hit his second shot. So we asked the, the tour to provide us with somebody that could identify these names. And who they gave us was the, the guy that re-gripped all the players' clubs. You couldn't really call, call it an equipment van because... It really wasn't, but he was there, and if guys needed their clubs regripped, he'd do that. His name was Art, and he came in the truck, and the first broadcast, Art's sitting next to me, and I look at him, and I point to a monitor, and I say, who's that? And he leans in as far as he can, and he picks up his glasses, and he says, it's too small. I can't see a face. I don't know. So I was like, well, you're going to be a big help. So... Gary Foltz was playing on the tour at the time, and he was getting ready to retire, and he came in the truck one day and was just kicking around, and I was like, you know who these guys are? He knew every single one, so I kicked Art out of the truck, sat Jerry down. Jerry became my spotter, basically telling me who all these players were, and then we got to talking, and he had an interest in being a broadcaster, so I put him on the air. So that was, that was kind of fun. We had, you know, we tried a whole bunch of stuff, too. We put heart rate monitors on guys. We used uh, jugs guns that measure the baseball, you know, the speed of the baseball to do. You know, we were the earliest, you know, we did the early track man by putting a jugs gun behind a guy and measuring ball speed and, and all that stuff for, the, for that. We had uh, microphones on players. We got some great stuff out of that. Um, we just had a ball. We had a ball. It was so much fun. Well, and it sounds like way more creative stuff than we see nowadays on Golf Channel, where it seems like they're being very safe about kind of protecting the images and essentially the sponsorship dollars of 
of you know these events and, and these players. I know we've talked a little bit about how you've said times have changed. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen from the wild, wild west days, as you call them, in the early days of Golf Channel to kind of modern-day Golf Channel? Where did it really seem to kind of switch? Because I know from talking with a lot of these guys you mentioned, Michael Whalen, Paul Farnsworth, uh, Lee Siegel, some of these other producers from Golf Channel, they definitely all believe that there was a change and that it happened somewhere near the millennium. Uh, would you agree with that? And what do you think some of these changes are if you do? Yeah, I would. I, I definitely would. And I think that, you know, that timing is probably about right. And, I, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, I think that, sadly, you know, it's kind of like the more that, the more that, you think that people are paying attention. I think that there are some some people that feel like then the safer we have to be. We you know we have to you know we can't be as irreverent and we can't be you know as experimental. And you know that was one of the things I really loved up until really up until the the, the time that I stopped doing what was then the Nationwide Tour was that you know they I just. It's not that not that the folks back in Orlando didn't care. It's I guess that they trusted us enough to know that we weren't going to embarrass anybody. Um, so we were always, you know, I was always kind of given a little bit of, a, I guess, a little bit of leeway to to try and be as creative as I possibly could be um, in the way we covered the golf tournaments. And you know, I really appreciated everybody for doing that. But I think that um, you also have to have the right people in the truck. You know, you have to have a buy-in there that everybody's willing to go out on that limb with you and not worry about whether or not, you know, you're going to be the one sawing it off. So um, I think that kind of went away. I think that that the people that were, were, were televising the golf, you know, kind of like, well, it's okay if you do it, but I'm not going to try it because, A, either they didn't have enough faith in themselves or you know, they didn't buy into, you know, what we were trying to do. I don't know, but it definitely did. There was a time when, um, you know, I think that it's kind of like, listen, we're not, you know, we're not this little startup anymore. We're, you know, we're a full-fledged, you know, television network, and, and we have to be more, you know, kind of like we have to be more of a responsible adult maybe, which I think is the absolute wrong philosophy. It's like if you can't have fun and you can't bring, you know, kind of like this, uh, a little bit of, I hate to use the word immaturity, but a little bit of, you know, kind of childlike awe and, you know, what can we do next to the to the process, then it gets old and it gets stale and it gets, you start doing things that everybody else is doing. And, um, you know, so I think that, you know, and, and I maybe even a little bit the technology came along so that people could, you know, add things to telecast by way of technology as opposed to just old-fashioned storytelling or trying new things if you know the technology was an easy kind of crutch to say well look what you know look what we're doing now and um you don't really have to take a lot of chances because it's all computer driven and well, you know, I know from my own personal vantage point that some of the stuff that I find the most 
entertaining and fascinating is when things break down in these tournaments, whether it's a player losing their cool and getting caught cursing on a live mic or just completely flipping out, or maybe it's fans that are being unruly and irreverent and kind of seeing how a player responds positively or negatively to that. Or maybe it's a commentator like Johnny Miller that kind of takes a flyer on some kind of, you know, wild-like statement that could offend people, but also is kind of your inner voice coming out on the broadcast. And I know that you and I talked about how I'm profiling Peter Kessler, who was surely an early example of that kind of brilliant irreverence as far as commentating goes. But I guess they obviously don't want the Peter Kesslers and the Johnny Millers in the booth much anymore. It seems like they really want people that are more Jim Nances that are safe and that say the right things and that are, you know, very reverential and they don't want any of that. And I think it kind of leaves it to the people sitting at home to kind of add that colorful commentary ourselves while we're shouting at the TV screen. I mean, am I onto something there or is that just me kind of hyperbolizing? No, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, I mean, I think that golf is, has um, kind of settled into this, this sameness, which is a little sad. And I, I you know, I, I, my wife can't watch golf on television with me because that's all I do is scream at the TV set. Um, <laughs> me too. I used to be screaming in the truck. So I'd scream at the announcers, to, you know, like, you know, this is, you know, we're getting boring, we're getting stale, let's pick up the energy level. You know, we've had... Yeah, but that's also gotten me and my announcers in trouble. I tell a story in the book about Dottie Pepper at the Solheim Cup when, you know, we had gone to break. We were in Sweden. We had gone to break. We thought we had gone to break. And the US, USA team was, you know, in the process of, you know, missing every important putt and, and, and giving away the Solheim Cup. And after we had gone to break, when I was told by the AD sitting behind me that we were clear, in Dottie's ear, I said, "Choking fucking dog. And Dottie, <laughs> to her credit, said, "Choking freaking dog." Well, that's time to break. And so everybody who was watching Golf Channel at the time heard Dottie Pepper call the U.S. Solheim Cup team a bunch of choking freaking dogs. <laughs> and it got Dottie. I mean, Dottie was suddenly, and all of a sudden... Like that, we had a couple of corporate folks that were over there with us came running in the trailer we were in, and they were like, "You gotta have Dottie apologize." You, oh my God, you gotta have Dottie apologize. And I was like, hey, "What? What? What? <laughs> you just called the U.S. team a bunch of choking freaking dogs?" I was like, "We were in commercial. No, we weren't. Orlando didn't roll the brake. We were still on the air." <laughs> and I had to go and Dottie. It's like, what the hell do I do now? I can't let her, you know, not know that this happened. So I tell her this happened and her what she said went on the air and I was so sorry because if I had never said choking fucking dogs in her ear, she would have never said it on the air. And, you know, to her credit, she owned it. And she was like, oh, by the way, they were choking freaking dogs. She went in the locker room and Betsy King was the captain and she was like, how could you do this to us? This is so demoralizing. And Dottie was like, you guys were choking it away. What, you know, to your point... That's the kind of thing that Johnny Miller would have said on the air, and nobody would have given it, you know, to, you know, a second look because that was his style. Well, but you know, these these players didn't want to hear that. You know, oh my God, maybe they were, you know, maybe they weren't holding up their end of the bargain. So, um, you know, that was fun. We had a microphone on Jason Enlow, who is now the coach of SMU, 
uh, and they were just in the NCAA, you know, NCAA match play championships. He was wearing a microphone one time, and I hope I can say this. I already said the, the F word. Oh, we're good. From the back tease is all about some oh. fucks and shits. No worries, bud. Yeah. So anyway, Jason Enlow, we come back from commercial, and it's like Jason Enlow on the T at 11, and this was at a Nationwide Tour event. And he hits this, actually, I think it might have been, a, actually, it was a Canadian tour event we were televising. And he hits this low screamer. It got about two feet off the ground. And Jason Enlow says, run, you little cunt. <laughs> and he stops for half a second and says, oh, fuck. I'm weak. so that guy, we ran, we, of course, were dying in the truck. So he, you know, that got out on the air. And the funniest part about that story was, that nobody in Orlando was paying attention, so the same exact thing aired during the re-air that night. So <laughs> nobody cleaned it up. So we're watching the re-air in the hotel room that night, and all of a sudden, here it is, and it's loud and clear again. And it was like, oh my God, I call up Orlando, what are you guys doing back there? We told you that Jason Enlow said this, and could, you were supposed to take that out. Oh yeah, we're sorry, yeah, we didn't do it, we forgot. So. You know, little things like that that, you know, now now that there was no way that that would, you know, that would ever. First of all, they, you know, guys are so worried about wearing microphones and stuff these days that it, it may not happen. But even if it did happen, it, it wouldn't, you know, there'd be a, there'd be a, somebody would catch it and, and it wouldn't air. But uh, it sure aired in those days. Well, my, my best friend and I have this tradition every time we get together of going on YouTube and looking up the compilations people make of people swearing or you know meltdowns on golf courses and we found this phenomenal Tiger Woods swear compilation and obviously Tiger is known as one of the most prolific cursors on a golf course but what's so hilarious to us is that one of the most famous Tiger meltdowns was at the 2000 US Open at Pebble Beach that he won by something like 15, 16 strokes he was like the only guy under par the next player at second place was at even <laughs> and here he is blasting one tee shot in the water on his way to this just monstrous victory and that one tee shot is so angering to him that he drops a god damn it you fucking prick like just freaks out and and we laugh about it but then the the biography just came out uh, about tiger that just came out last last summer and that anecdote is mentioned in the book and i guess uh, Jim Gray, I believe it was, or one of, one of the announcers there, was asked to go and ask him about it after the round. And I guess it angered Tiger so much that he was put on the spot and asked to apologize for it when he was trying to act like it just hadn't happened, that he never spoke to this guy again, and it became this huge problem. I guess to the question again, is this something that the golfers have kind of made a reality because they're so guarded about their image because they're trying to protect sponsorship dollars? Or is this more the network trying to create this this look of golf as being this very pristine, immoral, gentlemanly sport when we know full well that so many golfers, whether they be men or ladies, are, are not really fitting that image of, of the golfer and are more kind of the John Daly or Happy Gilmore type golfer than they are, you know, the, the Bob Jones or whoever, who also seem to have a temper too, but always tried to purport himself as not. I mean, is that, are we, am I getting at something there? I mean, who, who is the one that's, that's, that's driving this? Is it the golfers and their agents or is it more the network and the sponsors? I, I, I would, I would have my, my only answer to that would be, I would have to say that it's a combination of, not only the players who are much more 
you know, kind of image, image centric, image savvy now. Um, then, you know, I mean, you know, back in the, when we were doing the senior tour, when I was doing the senior tour for ESPN in the late 80s and early 90s, I mean, those guys swore like sailors, like all the time. And, you know, we would have to, you know, it's like, well, don't get to, you know, don't get that mic on the golf course too close to them because, you know, they, they you know, they'd let it rip every single shot almost. And I think now that the players are that way, I think that, I think you're, you're spot on that, you know, the networks, um, think they have this, the, the image of golf that, that needs to be preserved. And, and at the, at the one that can't be forgotten is the tour that, you know, the tour, um, promotes that image as well. And, you know, they, they, uh, they have a vested interest in making sure that, you know, what they think is this image that needs to be portrayed is constantly portrayed when I'm with you. I mean, you know, the more that we can show these guys as actual human beings that react like almost every single other person who plays golf reacts, um, that would, to me, go a, a longer way to, you know, to boosting the popularity of the sport from you know, what is a, a pretty narrow kind of niche um, following to a more, you know, a more broad one. Well, Keith, I'm going to only hit you with a few more questions. I, I want to ask one more golf-related question before we move on to kind of your post-golf channel writing career. But I had mentioned earlier that I'm doing this profile on Peter Kessler, and I wanted to ask you for a few quick comments on Peter as well. Um, I know you said you were willing to go on record with a couple answers on some questions I've got for you, but I want to ask a couple very specific questions, and then we'll move on quickly. Uh, as far as your time producing at the Golf Channel, what was your impression of Peter Kessler as a broadcaster, and what was your impression of kind of the general impression by everyone at Golf Channel about Peter Kessler? So I guess that's two questions. Yeah, uh, boy, um, you know, Peter was, Peter was a force. He was, uh, he was, um, and, and I, I, I want to say this in a way that, uh, and I want to mean it as both a criticism and a compliment. He, he had the biggest ego of anybody that I had ever been around. Um, and that includes, I, I actually was fortunate enough, or some people would say unfortunate enough, uh, to work with Keith Olbermann for a short period of time. And Peter Kessler put Keith Olbermann's ego to shame. Um, wow. <laughs> I say it as a compliment because Peter was talented. I mean, Peter was a talented broadcaster. He was, uh, he was, he was uh, uh, a, a really, really talented interviewer. He um, knew his subject matter. He was able to... Um, when, especially, and I'm talking more with the, the, he did a show called Golf Talk Live, which was a sit-down interview show at, that aired on Monday night on Golf Channel. And he was able to um, really get uh, an amazing amount of not only professional but personal stuff and information out of every single person who, with whom you know, he, he interacted. And so he had a talent. I mean, he was an amazingly talented broadcaster. But he was an asshole. He, he was a pain in the neck. And he was actually on my broadcast crew for a short period of time because Mike Whalen, um, who we you know, mentioned briefly, Mike Whalen was really the 
genius behind the Golf Channel. He was the creative genius behind Golf Channel. Um, and everything that, every reason that the Golf Channel was successful, in my opinion, um, you know, trickled down from Joe Gibbs because he let his people do um, what they were good at. And Bob Greenway, who was the, you know, a kind of the vice president of production at the time who hired Mike. Uh, but Mike was the creative guy behind the whole network, hired all the people came up with all the shows, came up with the ideas for the shows, saw them to fruition. So, But anyway, um, Mike's idea was that Peter was going to be a great on-course golf announcer because he would give us the everyman perspective. He would give us the six handicap perspective of what's going on out on the golf course. And, you know, all our, most of our viewers are single-digit handicap golfers, and they'll be able to relate. Well, you can't fool golf viewers. I mean, they're the, they're the they are, you know, they know what's going on. So Peter gave, threw out a couple of calls early on in his on-course announcing work that just, you know, were, were incomprehensible. And um, the pros on our crew, Jim Nelford and Kay Cockrell and Gary Smith, came to me and said, you can't, he can't say that stuff. They don't, you know, professional golfers don't hood a seven iron out of thick rough. You know, they, that's not what happens. So we, we have to, you know, put a check on this. And then um, Peter had an incident with, with some, uh, some illegal drugs at the time that put a couple of our people um, with whom he was working in jeopardy. And so I went to Mike and I said, you know, I can't have this guy on my crew. Um, you may think he's, you know, the everyman that's going to give us that perspective on the golf course, but A, that's not working. And B, this other thing happened and where he had a couple of, you know, what leftover, um, you know, marijuana cigarettes in the ashtray of a rental car that he was sharing with another announcer. And I said, you can't, I can't, I can't put, you know, I can't put Gary Smith's professional career and life and reputation on the line, you know, um, because Peter Kessler wants to break the law. So um, he, so, and he, you know, he, he didn't take kindly to the, to not being on the crew anymore, but, um, you know, we got over all that, but he was, uh, he was, he was a pain in the ass. I mean, he, he was his own worst enemy because he could have had a long and brilliant career in this business, but he couldn't, he couldn't get out of his own way. He couldn't stop stepping on his own dick. Yeah, it kind of seems to be what I've heard time and again, and you've also checked off some other boxes about Mike Whalen being more of the Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo of Golf Channel versus Peter Kessler, who claims that he was indeed the Michelangelo of Golf Channel. So thank you for that. I guess we'll move on to Keith Hersland again. Uh, somewhere around, I believe it was 2013, you said, you decided to move on from Golf Channel uh, give us a little bit of the account of how you left. I said, I think you told me it was not exactly your decision, but you also made it yourself as well. And then a little bit about how you've gotten into becoming an author, not only of your memoirs, uh, as we talked about, and definitely go check out Keith's book, Cover Me Boys, about his time at Golf Channel, but now also writing fiction and becoming a fairly successful writer of fiction as well. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, it was kind of uh, an odd transition, but um, I decided, my parents passed, my dad passed away in 2007, my mom died a year later. We were uh, on Maui, my wife and Sarah and I were on Maui, you know, doing what kids do, going through boxes and, and going through, you know, all their stuff. And we came across a couple of boxes that had mom and dad's memorabilia from their TV station time in Reno. And 
as Sarah, uh, I'm, you know, I married Sarah later in life, and she didn't get a chance to spend a whole lot of time with my parents, and she was blown away. She, was, she just said to me, she said, Keith, you know, I can't believe how accomplished your parents were and how many things they did and, and all these commendations and letters from, you know, presidents and Nevada Association of Broadcaster Awards. And she said, I had no idea. And she looked at me and she said, don't let this be your kid. You know, you've won an Emmy. You've, you know, you've been part of two, you know, helped start two television networks. You've been around the greatest athletes in the world. She said, start writing a journal, just putting down some stories about some of the things that you've done. And you can, that way that you'll have a history, a written history of your time in, you know, in the broadcasting industry and your life that you'll be able to leave to your kids. And so I started writing it down. I started covering me, boys. It was just, you know, I was journaling. I was just remembering stories. And thankfully for me, I had taken copious notes throughout my entire career. I was famous for walking around all the time with a little blue graph paper pad. And I would write, I'd go to meetings with a pad and a pen. I learned that early on from Don Olmeyer. And it was like, I wrote down everything and I kept all that stuff. So I went back and retelling stories and writing things down. And after a time, I thought, man, this could actually be a book. So I approached it that way and started writing Cover Me Boys, I'm Going In. Um, and luckily, I had a, a, a fantastic first beta reader who would put me in check and basically say, you know, you can't write this. You can't say this. Because there were some times at Golf Channel, there was, I had some bitterness. Even in, you know, the, the early 2010, 11, 12, um, I had been demoted. You know, some other people were, were doing shows that I thought I had earned the right to do. And I carried a lot of anger and bitterness around with me, Tucker, that was, you know, that I was kind of like, it was cathartic. I was getting it out on this, you know, I was writing that, you know, all my anger out on the pages. And this person, you know, who was, was my, actually my mother-in-law, would come back to me and say, you can't say this. You can't write this. You can't put this down on paper. You need to, you know, either rewrite this chapter or, you know, say it in a different way because if you write this, all you're just going to do is come across as a whiny, bitter old man. And, you know, so I took that to heart and I rewrote a bunch of the chapters and rewrote a bunch of the pages. And, um, you know, we, we, we published the book in uh, the fall of 2013. We self-published Cover Me Boys, I'm Going In. And at the time, coincidentally, my wife, who was with the USGA at the time, had, um, was kind of one of the folks that was the architect of the, the Fox um, broadcast rights deal. So, um, you know, they got a $93 billion, they got some, you know, some, some crazy amount of money from, from Fox to broadcast the USGA events, which coincidentally took those rights away from NBC Universal. So uh, that all happened kind of at the same time. I published the book, the, the NBC lost the rights to the USGA event, and Golf Channel called up and said, you know, we don't think you're the right person to, to work our events anymore. Um, and, you know, I thought about it for a minute, and I thought, you know, they claimed it was because of the book, because I had given away some inside secrets and inside information about the book, which I felt like I really hadn't, but okay. And, you know, I consulted a lawyer, and basically they said, listen, they can fire you for any reason they want. I, you know, you can sue them if you want, but you're not going to win. 
And then I thought about it. My wife and I got together, and God bless my wife. And she was like, are you done carrying this anger and bitterness around? Are you done? Because, you know, you published this book. It's all on paper. We're mo- I'm moving on. I'd like you to move on with me. Um, and I realized that I'd probably overstayed my welcome by a couple of years, maybe maybe as many as five years. And, um, and at the same time, realized that I enjoyed writing that book so much that I, I wanted to give fiction a try. So... Um, I sat down and wrote a mystery, and then I wrote another one, and then I wrote a third one. So um, I guess that's how I reinvented myself um, as an author. Well, give us the names of these other books that you wrote so that people can check them out online. Give us a little more uh, insight on those books. Yeah, so, you know, what I tried to do in all, all my fiction writing was have a little bit of, of fact in, in there. So the first fiction book I wrote is called Big Flies. F-L-I-E-S. And that's based on a Balzac quote that uh, laws are like spider webs where the big flies pass and the little flies get caught. And the premise of the book is, when I was growing up in Reno, I don't know if you, you're, you're probably too young to remember, but there was the, the very first domestic skyjacking in U.S. history was a guy named D.B. Cooper who jumped out of an airplane with $200,000 strapped to his back. Um, and he did that uh, in the he jumped out of an airplane in the Pacific Northwest. That airplane was headed for Reno, Nevada, and this was 1973. And um, actually, it might have been 1971. Sorry, but it was Thanksgiving in the early 70s. And my dad's station rolled out the live trucks to go to the airport because the plane carrying DB Cooper was going to land at Reno International Airport. Well, it landed, but he wasn't on it. He had jumped out. They never found him, never found the money. He is still, the FBI just recently closed the case. But I remembered it. Um, and so I thought, what would happen if a young guy grew up and realized after his father passed away that his father was D.B. Cooper? So I wrote the book um, kind of telling the story in, in the past. I, I, I titled the chapters These Days and Those Days. And the those days chapters tell the D.B. Cooper story, and the these, day, these days chapters tell the, the son of D.B. Cooper story. Well, you know, that sounds fascinating. I do know the D.B. Cooper story, and I think it's one of the most fascinating modern mysteries because people still wonder if he's out there somewhere and just has managed to elude capture or if he's died somewhere along the way. That sounds right. fascinating. And doing the research for that book, I also realized that in a 10-year span, there were three other major still unsolved robberies. So I incorporated, I thought, well, why couldn't the same person or the same group of people have perpetrated all these crimes? So I, I tell a story of, you know, it's kind of a, a number of, of robberies and, and unsolved mysteries that I kind of tie all together. The second one was we were living in a, in a house in North Carolina, and the second book is called The Flower Girl Murder, and we were living in a house in South Carolina. We had moved to L.A. We were renting the house to a young lady who was a law student, and her father had decided that he wanted to buy the house for her, but he wanted to pay cash, um, but he couldn't, he couldn't come up with all the money at once, so he wondered if it would be okay if he gave it to us in installments. Um, at like what ended up being ten to fifteen thousand dollars a pop, and every.
every once in a while he'd say, I got another ten to $15,000 for you. So we finally met the man, and he was an old farmer from North Carolina. I'm guessing he may, may or may not have ever set foot in a bank. Um, and so I came up with this character who uh, buried money in coffee cans in his property and uh, was part of a, a little um, crime family in North Carolina. That uh, And he had a daughter who ended up being maybe being, maybe not being, uh, a murderer. So, um, The Flower Girl Murder was my second book, and I just finished, uh, my third, which is, I tried to have a little bit of fun with it, it's called Murphy Murphy and the Case of Serious Crisis, and it's about a detective who solves, uh, crimes out of the Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> and I incorporate about 150 redundant phrases in the book, um, because that was one of my pet peeves while I was a, a producer was that my announcers using redundant phrases and things like that. So I decided to write a book about it. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. <laughs> As a lover of language and an English major myself, I would definitely get a kick out of that, I am sure. Well, Keith, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. I appreciate all of your time. You got any last shout-outs you'd like to make? This is the time if you'd like to shout anyone out or do any more follow-up plugs or whatnot. Go ahead. Take the take the floor. No, I would just say I want to thank you. I mean, I appreciate the interest, and I've, I've enjoyed uh, getting to know you and what you're all about. And, you know, I think that, uh, that you've got a bright future ahead of you. And, and I would just like to thank the folks at Beacon Publishing. They, they republished Cover Me Boys. It came out again as a new edition in, in February of this year, so uh, I'm actually a published author now, and they've agreed to publish Murphy Murphy as well. So um, that's that's a lot of fun. But I just want to say that you know that my whole career, I have I have been blessed, and I have been able to work with some amazing, talented, wonderful people, and I would be remiss um, not to recognize them every chance that I get um, because. Uh, Really, doing te sports television is a complete team effort. It, it takes 100 and 150 people to put a golf tournament on television, and every single one of them is, is no less important or no more important than every other one of them. And then, you know, I just have to thank my wife, Sarah, for, for being part of my life and, and keeping me grounded and, and letting me know what's important in life. So I thank you for that opportunity, and... You know, I'd love to talk to you anytime about anything. Wow, well, I appreciate that, Keith. I really enjoyed getting to know you too, man. And on behalf of all the redundant interviewers out there, Keith Hurstland from Golf Channel, he's an author. Check him out. Buy his books. Amazon. They're all over there. Cover me, boys. You've heard me say it. I'll say it again. Cover me, boys. Check it out. Really appreciate you being with me, Keith. And I also know, since you obviously have a wife that's not only great at keeping you grounded, but also seems like she's making big moves herself, I know who to holler at if I ever need any U.S. Open tickets. <laughs> you bet. Do it. Right on, man. Well, I certainly appreciate this. Thank you for coming on the From the Back Tees podcast today, Keith. And I will definitely look forward to catching up with you down the road, man. Yep. I look forward to it, too, Tucker. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you.